You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you are listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. What's going on, my brother? Oh, everything, everything. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, man. As you know, and the folks who listen to us all the time know, we usually try to start uh, this show off with some energy. Uh, but today, unfortunately, we'll be starting off on a bit of a sober note. I'm talking to you today with uh, a heavy heart. Uh, my mentor, Atlanta City Councilman C.T. Martin, the longtime dean of the Atlanta City Council, the definition of a grassroots representative, uh, passed away uh, this weekend. So uh, dealing with that, along with some some folks, many of the folks in Atlanta who he mentored and, and, and uh, rode alongside him for a long time. This was a man that meant so much. Uh, to Atlanta, Chris, a man that meant so much to his district, District 10. And to be honest, Chris, really uh, somebody who humbled me as a 20-something attorney going into politics, Uh, someone who made me realize that, I guess made me realize the political smarts that I didn't have and and needed to develop uh, and really made me come to terms with the fact that I had been in an academic and professional bubble for quite a while and needed to reconnect with the people if I was really going to be uh, a true leader in the Atlanta legacy sense. Um, he, he really made me uh, know the community and serve the community first, uh, really showed me what the definition of a servant leader was by demonstration. Um, and I'll be honest with you, that's the most valuable lesson of my political career. Um, I didn't learn it in political science class. I didn't learn it in law school. I learned it in the streets of Southwest Atlanta and C.T. Martin was my professor. So rest in peace, uh, my friend. So grateful for all the things that you taught me and your legacy will certainly live on. Uh, this is somebody who taught me even, you know, even how to run meetings in, a, in, a, in an effective way, how to organize people, how to encourage people. Um, I'll go so far as to saying that there would not be an AND campaign without C.T. Martin, or at least the AND campaign wouldn't look the way it does as far as our our emphasis on community or organization and our emphasis on a grassroots approach. So again, uh, rest in peace, my friend. Well, Chris, um, we have a lot of things to cover today as usual. So uh, uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, as I'm sure you know by now, brother, the American Jobs Report that comes out monthly uh, was a huge disappointment uh, for April. Uh, U.S. employers only added about two two hundred and sixty six thousand jobs in April, and the unemployment rate actually rose, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. Uh, this was, you know, when you're talking about the the, the amount of jobs added, this was a huge uh, disappointment and well below expectations. Economists expected the U.S. economy to surge and to add about one million jobs. So you see that we only reached about a quarter of that number. 
Again, that's a, a huge disappointment. To add insult to injury, the gains reported in March were actually revised from 916,000 to 770,000. That is a significant drop. So they had to revise March's numbers because they weren't as high as they thought they were. Uh, based on, and, and here's the thing though, Chris, I think based on in the ending of the lockdown, based on the fact that people are uh, getting vaccinated at higher rates, um, based on consumer confidence being at a 14 month high and the housing market being in a boom, it really did make sense to assume that Americans would be going back to work because there are jobs available. And we see Biden's team even vowed that the large stimulus would recover all the remaining jobs lost during the pandemic. Well, there are still 8.2 million jobs left to recover. And so we have a ways to go. Now, we could have predicted this, but uh, conservatives and progressives wasted no time inserting these facts into their narrative. Uh, many conservatives said that there's a work shortage because Biden's unemployment benefits have incentivized staying home. If you make more money staying home than you do going to work, why would you go to work rather than staying home with your kids or doing other things that you enjoy? Now, I'll be honest with you. I think it's very hard to deny in good faith that unemployment benefits didn't play a significant role here. So I, I, I'm not really going to push back on that. I think I think that's just part of, of what's going on. But what I do push back on, uh, at least on the conservative side, is that some conservatives, not all for sure, but some seem to be suggesting that it's because people are lazy. Right. Not that they made just kind of a logical deduction that gives them time to do other things, but just that they're lazy and didn't kind of want to work anyway. National uh, Review writer, which a National Review is a conservative publication. But uh, the writer Charles Cook basically said, don't be a loser. Go get up and get a job. Uh, and we know how, how helpful it is to talk about other people as losers. But some progressives say that the problem, on the other hand, is that people weren't get, were getting paid too little in the first place and that the stimulus gave them options. The stimulus gave them flexibility and uh, employers just need to raise the rate wages. They say this would not be happening. Bernie Sanders and others say this would not be happening if the wages were where they were supposed to be. Uh, we wouldn't really be having this problem. Now, so, some folks on the extreme left seem to be saying that everything that if everything was free, then we wouldn't need jobs at all. And so we get all these different arguments. Again, those arguments don't represent everybody on the conservative side or everybody on the progressive side. But we want to give you an idea of what people are saying. Now, Heather Long, from who is a writer uh, from The Washington Post, believes there's a different way to interpret all of this. Uh, she says that there isn't a work shortage. There's a great re reassessment going on in the American economy. She says um, at the most basic level, people are hesitant to return to work until they're fully vaxxed and their children are back in school full time. She points out that all the job gains were men, that the number of women employed or the num and the number uh, looking for work went down 64,000 people. So 64,000 less women are either um employed are looking for work, due in part, she would say, to child care. But she goes on to say this. There is also evidence that people want to do something different with their lives than they were doing before the pandemic. People are reassessing what they want to do and how they want to work. According to a Pew Research survey, 66 percent of the unemployed had seriously considered changing their field of work. This is a luxury that many working class people don't usually have. 
Grocery stores, for example, lost over 49,000 workers in April, and nursing home facilities lost nearly 20,000. I can speak to the grocery store because I went to the grocery store this weekend, and there was literally one person checking out almost 75 people. It, it was crazy. And so I'm guessing that was part of the shortage. But economic e- economists are uh, calling this reallocation friction. The idea that the types of jobs in the economy are changing and the workers are taking a while to figure out what new jobs they want. And uh, they're, they're having to figure this out fast, especially when it comes to some of these employers. Chipotle, Chipotle for instance, uh, announced that it will be raising wages to an average of $15 an hour. Uber needs a whole lot more drivers. And so they're spending a lot. Uh, they're spending millions of dollars trying to bring in more driver uh, uh, drivers. And I think we'll see a lot of companies who will be trying to find ways to make these jobs more attractive. That is never a bad thing for the workers. And so this is a very interesting dynamic. But I wanted to hear what you had to say about it, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I uh, certainly was I was I was so incredibly interested when these uh when these dropped numbers came uh, out, and the uh, the Washington Post article that that you uh, pointed to, Justin, kind of um, at least gets in the direction of how I interpreted these uh, these jobs numbers. That there is uh, sort of a reassessment of work uh, happening, uh, and to me, I think that is a very very good thing. Um, I think that this is a, a a critical moment for uh, for biblical Christians to be able to bring our uh, biblical worldview uh, to a policy discussion in a way that can yield great fruit uh, for human flourishing. Uh, I, I love the way that that you said it, Justin. That that uh, folks on the left and the right immediately took these facts and uh, inserted them into their narratives, right? Which is uh, something that we talk about here all the time. Uh, Folks love to allow the narrative to uh, gobble up the facts and just make the facts, a, you know, a part of that and a reinforcement of that. But I think that uh, there's a real conversation that can be had here um, around uh, life and meaning uh, and what that means for people all over uh, the economy and all over the United States. Right? Uh, I think that for a long time, the uh, the, the righteous responsibility that I think we could uh, both agree we could argue for from the scripture, the responsibility to provide for oneself and one's family through work uh, has been wrongly translated into a responsibility to produce for uh, corporations and for the quote unquote economy. Uh, and so we have reinterpreted, I think, uh, at least in the United States, this idea of work, not as a pursuit of, of purpose and provision for one's family, uh, but more as a responsibility to produce for the corporation and to produce for the economy. And that uh, has become what is honorable and righteous about work. And so then when we start talking about opening the economy, uh, we basically assumed that people would step up and, um, you know, fulfill their responsibility, which in our frame has been to produce. Um, But folks have been uh, opened up at least uh, to this new idea. And and certainly, you know, I I wouldn't go as far as some folks with the 
you know, make everything free. But folks have been opened up to, to this idea that the real thing that work is about is actually not me producing for my company, but me providing for my household um, and then pursuing my purpose. Right. And so there's an opportunity for us uh, if we can get into this conversation, um, certainly to to push back against those on the extreme left who are like, hey, let's make everything free. We don't even need jobs. Uh, you know, everything can be like this sort of jobless uh, and, and almost workless utopia. Right. Because there is a place uh, for work um, in terms of providing for our families, pursuing our purpose. Uh, but then we can also push back against those on the right who have uh, basically translated that responsibility to provide for family and produce, I mean, pursue purpose uh, into this thing of producing for corporations and for the economy. Uh, and so we've got this great opportunity uh, to get to a much healthier place. I think uh, something that will be more in line with biblical, uh, a biblical view of work. Uh, and I think it would be so much more healthy for our uh, for our society. Um, you know, we've seen so many folks in the last uh, decade or so, uh, lose their lives. Um, you know, we've seen this outbreak of, of, uh, addiction, depression, uh, throughout a lot of the country, especially in places where industrial jobs have left and the economies have fall, fallen apart. Uh, and that, that really has to do with the fact that folks don't even know how to define themselves outside of their nine to five job. Uh, and there's a real opportunity here, I think, to recover some of our humanity, um, and how we move forward with uh, reimagining uh, this whole economic structure. So I, I hope that people continue to vote with their feet uh, and that that Christian thinkers especially begin to step up uh, and, and really provide what I think will be a very healthy uh, and helpful contribution to this, this broader discussion. Yeah, I mean, we know that the economy can't get back going if people aren't at work. Right. So we need people to go back to work. Uh, I don't think it's at a, a point anymore because there are jobs available and, you know, folks aren't on lockdown. I don't think we need to further expand unemployment. But for those who, of us who may say we'll stop being a loser, get back to work, especially for those of us that are Christians. Uh, we do need to think as we go back into work and ask people to get back into work and make their choices with where they want to work, which is a choice that many of us have. But some of us don't. We do need to think about what it means to have for people to be able to spend more time with their families, right? What it means for women to be able to uh, take the time to spend more time with their kids. If we just see that as a bad thing, because it's a product, like you said, it's just all about productivity. It's just all about efficiency. What is that saying about us? So we can want people to work. We can want people to go back to work, but how do we feel about the woman who is working two jobs and has no time to uh, take with her kids? How do we feel feel about those things? And so I'm not I'm not necessarily going to uh, promote some policy prescription. But as we look at it as Christians, you know, the loser stuff and all this other stuff, man, unless you've been in a situation where you're in a dead end job and you're behind on your bills and you're trying to catch up. And so you can't really move around. Be very slow to talk about people like that, man. Um, and, and I just see that coming from too many people who make it too simple, who make it a very simple decision when for a lot of other folks, it's not that simple. Um, not a very simple uh, dis, um, decision to make. And, and what they're going through is very tough. Uh, and anything else on this, uh, Chris? Yeah, I, I would just say, you know, further down that point that you were making, uh, is there's a great opportunity here uh, to reclaim 
for those of us who, who think this way and, and feel this way, uh, this discussion around family, right? Like we have had a lot of policy and we talked about it, I think, on the last podcast where there are folks who want to use public policy to dictate uh, to folks how they organize their family life. Uh, and for those of us who believe in at least making, you know, uh, different forms of family life uh workable, uh, this is a great opportunity to say, hey, let's not be so quick to force women back into the workplace. Right now, we shouldn't exclude women from the workplace, but let's not use this as an opportunity to force uh, women back into the workplace. Let's not use this as an opportunity to force people into those dead-end jobs. Uh, There's a a Gallup poll from the beginning of this year, in in January they took it, um, that showed that only 15% of people uh, reported that they were uh, engaged uh, with the with their work. Only fifteen percent. That is uh, incredibly depressing to me as somebody who believes uh, in a in a purpose based economy more so than a uh, production based economy. So if if there is a reassessment and a realignment, I think we should lean into that and use it as a, as an opportunity uh, to bring a perspective that maybe a lot of other folks won't be bringing into the conversation. Mm, very good point. Well, that's the first segment of the and of the and campaigns church politics podcast. We will be right back. And we are back on the church politics podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Chris Butler. Chris, you and I talk a lot about, the importance of rebuilding our institutions and how institutions are important in cultivating values and effectively operating in the public square. Um, Now, the question is, can we maintain that belief and at the same time acknowledge that some large Christian institutions are actually hurting the Christian public witness and the spread of the gospel? Can we acknowledge that a Christian institution that is primarily focused on self-preservation and Christian self-interest is actually running counter to the gospel. Well, David French, a guy who, I, who I've been on multiple panels with, uh, believes that American Christendom is weakening American Christianity. And he made his case on a blog that he posted uh, last week. And I think he made a, a pretty strong case. Now, I want to uh, give a shout out. This article was sent to me initially by my friend uh, Chris Burnett. Shout out to Pooh Bear. I want to give him his props for that. But I found it to be a very interesting article and a, and a very strong argument. Uh, in the art article, Christendom uh, refers to both the legal inst- the legal institutions, the juridic persons, as we used to call them in law school, of the church, and the culture those institutions create. Christianity, so we're talking about Christendom on one hand, that's the institution, legal institution. Christianity refers to the faith. French uh, French quotes Danish philosopher, and I know I'm going to tear this name up, Soren Kierkegaard, who believed that Christendom is dangerous to Christianity. He said the biggest danger being the enforced homogeneity of Christendom. It's better to see Christendom shrunk, uh, shrunk down to genuine believers than to see it ballooned and enforced into a parody of itself. He says Christendom was designed to make the way to Christianity easier when, in fact, the genuine faith must always be made hard. The stronger the emphasis on Christ, the fewer Christians. 
David French goes out to point David French goes on to point out the focus on doctrine in Christendom, right? Uh, the focus kind of on the orthodoxy, the doctrine. And he basically says that anyone can profess doctrine, right? Nothing stops you from professing doctrine. But he seems to be pointing out the lack of orthopraxy. And you know that the AN campaign often talks about orthodoxy, which is right belief, and that's very important. But we also talk about orthopraxy, which is right conduct, which is the self-sacrifice. It's the compassion, the imitation of Christ in our actions, denying ourselves and living that Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live life. That's what the right conduct, that's what the orthopraxy is about. And he's saying while folks are focused on that doctrine, Christendom really isn't necessarily focused on the conduct. It's hard to say that we've been crucified with Christ when we're engaging in the politics of Christian self-interest. And in my opinion, that's a lot of what you see coming from some Christian institutions. Now, these are things, Chris, that the Ann campaign has been talking about for a while now. And Christendom, these legal institutions, easily become primarily a means of self-preservation, a means of pursuing our cultural preferences and kind of imposing those preferences on others. The more powerful they become in some instances, the more they seek to protect themselves and to protect their leaders, even when they're in the wrong. We'll even ignore or persecute individual victims to preserve the institution or to protect the leader, again, in wrongdoing. Christian organizations that have a lot of power often benefit from the status quo and therefore will protect a broken status quo in too many of these instances. And as David French points out, this is why a lot of Christian institutions don't engage in racial justice. They don't want that deep disruption of their culture, no matter how much it's needed. Why suffer discomfort when you have the power not to? I mean, it's logical. It's not necessarily faithful. And this is why Christendom has been used in the past to maintain things like segregation in schools. A lot of Christian schools, especially when you're talking about K through 12, were created during the time when integration was happening. This is why Christendom has used the church to help people hide money and to avoid paying taxes. Using the church for those, those purposes, it happens. The truth is, this is why many people, Chris, voted for Donald Trump. Not everybody, but many did. It was a way to protect Christendom. Defending the indefensible, I would say, and engaging in the dark arts is never worth it. It's never a good way to go about trying to protect the faith. Because many times when we do those things, we're not protecting the faith. We're protecting a lot of other stuff. Chris, what were your thoughts on uh, French's article? Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a, uh, you know, it's, it's such a relevant question. Um, it is maybe one of the top three or four questions that I think uh, as, as a church leader that, that church leaders need to be wrestling with um, because there is this uh, very real sense in which uh, much of what we have been doing in the church uh, and what is celebrated in the church, I should say, uh, maybe a little bit more accurately, uh, has been the work that makes 
coming to Christ and uh, being a Christian easier. And every time, you know, I think about that, including when I'm reading this article, uh, you think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, that, you know, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. Um, And so whenever we try to pitch the way of Christ as an easy way, um, we have to begin to uh, assess that very closely. Um, I don't know that to the extent that I interpret the article as as an argument that uh, large institutions cannot embody that principle, I don't know that I agree with that. Um, I think that we see, uh, especially in the legacy of the Black church uh, in America, uh, some profound examples of uh, institutions uh, embodying, um, you know, these these. Uh, Christian and, and way of Christ is the article uh, uh, talks about embodying those principles, um, particularly if you look at the the struggle on the justice front. Uh, sometimes people overlook uh, the idea that when, when you listen to uh, to many preachers, I mean, uh, Martin Luther King notably, but many, many preachers, you listen to what they uh, preach and, and what Christian uh leaders in struggle have written uh, down through the years, the reason for the black church struggle uh, has not been, um, you know, only for the cause of black people. It's it's actually been for the cause of America, right? Like it's not just making life better for black Americans. Uh, When you read it, when you assess the heart of it, it has been about making America a better uh, place and calling America up to her own ideals. Uh, And then when you look at the way uh, of how the church uh, has chosen to struggle. The church, uh, all the way up to last summer, uh, has taken a lot of heat inside of our own community and inside of, um, you know, the, the the broader community of, of justice advocates for not taking more strident, uh, sometimes violent uh, approaches to struggle because we choose to be uh, faithful uh, to our uh our, our orthodoxy. So I don't think that it is impossible for uh, institutions to embody those principles, but I do think uh, that it is very important uh, that we are constantly assessing what we're doing as institutions. And as a large institution, we consider ourselves as one church. Uh, we have to constantly be assessing what we're doing to make sure that we haven't gone over uh, into that way of self-preservation um, and cheapening the gospel and avoiding uh, those difficult places where we may have to give up power, where we may have to, uh, you know, to, to die uh, to ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't think French was saying that large institutions can't do that. But to your point, he didn't clarify that. And so when I, when I was reading the article, I was thinking the same thing, too. It could have been assumed that he was saying large institute Christian institutions aren't good. And I don't think that's what he was saying, but I do think he was saying they can often fall in the larger they get, the more power they get, they can often fall into just trying to preserve themselves, right? Just being about self-preservation. And I, I truly believe that in Christianity, an institution is only valuable in as much as it's upholding the great commission in as much as it's loving its neighbor, right? That doesn't mean that we can't uh, promote, religious freedom and that we can't do things to make sure that Christians can thrive too. 
But if Christian self-interest is the main thrust of it, if we're not reaching out to others, if it's not focused on the poor, if, you know, if it's all about kind of protecting what becomes cultural, then I do think it loses its value. Something else that we talk about a lot is the witness is more important than the win. And some of these institutions have become so much about winning that they really are losing that compassionate, incredible witness. And that and that is huge. I think it's really problematic. And, and to go back to the religious freedom space or the religious liberty space. Even in the conversation about LGBTQ rights, when you when you talk to folks who aren't for any kind of LGBTQ rights, the main thing that they'll say is if we put their language into law, if we do this and if we do that, then you know, we're exposing Christians to some extent, right? We're exposing us to potential harms and we're changing this and changing that. And many of those things I don't want to happen. But my question is this, are we here to get ironclad protections just for ourselves? Or do we, especially when we look at the history of how LGBTQ people have been treated, do we have to even risk our own well-being to some extent or that we could somehow be harmed to make sure that others get what they deserve? That's the question I think people have to answer that want these iron. I don't disagree that there are better ways to go, even than the Fairness for All Act. I don't disagree that the Fairness for All Act doesn't give Christians completely ironclad protections. I'm, I can see that. But is that the point as a Christian who's trying to love their neighbor and trying to help people understand that we love them and are willing to sacrifice for them? Can we just be about protecting ourselves to the furthest extent? I don't think so, because I believe that when we see our maker, he's not going to say, hey, you did the best you could to protect yourself and make sure that no harm would come to you. Well done. Or is he going to say you did all that you could to protect your neighbor, to make sure that they were taken care of? These are conversations we have to have. And at the end of the day, when we feel like we have to have these institutions that completely protect everything we do, where have we placed our faith? Have we placed our faith into these uh, legal entities? Have we placed our faith in the laws that are protecting us or is our faith where it needs to be, where we can go out, take some chances and even know that we're not completely protected by the law and still love others as if we were. Chris, I'll let you end it. Yeah, I think there's a broad conversation, a longer conversation on what this uh, discussion means for uh, discipleship and how we organize ourselves. But certainly when it comes to uh, this civic space is something that we talk about uh, at the end campaign all the time. We spend uh, a good amount of time on it in the book. Uh, and that is, uh, as believers, we really should interpret our civic engagement as an opportunity and a platform to love our neighbor, uh, not so much to seek our own uh, self-interest. Uh, when, when I was learning as an organizer how to define self-interest, uh, we, we always stress that you look at self-interest not merely and simply as what is going to benefit you, uh, but what is going to be true to who you are in the world. Uh, and if we are as believers and as the church, the hands and feet of Christ extended, uh, then our civic engagement is not just about how do we protect ourselves. Uh, it's a platform to love our neighbors. Amen to that. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives? and too conservative for progressives? 
As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Some of you may have heard this debate that's been going back and forth. You got all kind of folks kind of commenting on it. I know Bill Gates came out and had his uh, two cents and folks on the left have been talking about it. And it's worth it's a worthy conversation. Uh, You may have heard that the Biden administration came out in support of waiving intellectual property protections for coronavirus vaccines. They were siding with international efforts to bolster production amid concerns about vaccine access in developing countries. So basically what was happening was because of these intellectual property or patent protections, it was harder. Some people say it was harder for these smaller countries to actually get the vaccine. So you have people that are, that are dying because they can't, you know, because they can't get the patent to make the vaccine, to give it to people. The more folks that can make the vaccine, the more people you can get it to. Uh, and this put, you know, this put the Biden. So the Biden administration initially, I, I don't think, was going to waive these patents. They changed their mind, which put which put them at odds with the U.S. pharmaceutical industry. And now it's putting them at odds with some folks in the European Union who are saying, hey, you haven't proven that this is going to make it more uh, accessible. Um, why are we doing this now? Just so you know, just a little bit of background on patents. Patents are what allow companies who create things to make money on what they created by stopping other people from creating the same product, right? So if I invest all this money and I invest all this time into creating something that's really helpful and really valuable, somebody else shouldn't be able just to, to just come along who's put no money into it, who's put no time into it and take what I create, right? Take my recipe and make money off my recipe. So, so basically what we say in the U.S. is for a certain period of time, when I create something like that, I'm the only one that can use it so that I can profit from it. Now, generally, I think that's right. Generally, I think, you know, that's what incentivizes innovation. And you do want to reward people for making those types of innovations. And that's why I think in a lot of instances, capitalism is more innovative than a lot of other forms or even socialism, because it does allow for that type of innovation. I do think there's a very strong argument that we're talking about different circumstances right now because we are talking about uh, a vaccine in a pandemic where millions of people have died. Right. So we need that. We need to talk about this a little bit differently than just the open market. Right. And I think there are definitely times when we need to say, hey, this isn't just a free market conversation. There is a greater good that we're talking about. And I think sometimes people miss that. So I'm more about, hey, let's make sure that we save as many lives as possible. And if waiving intellectual property rights when we have a pandemic allows us to do that, then so be it. Right. 
Um, and uh, the other thing that I think you have to point out when we're having this conversation, Chris, is that this wasn't just, you know, private money that was invested into these vaccines. There was a lot of taxpayer money invested into these vaccines. Now, uh, God bless all those folks who put in the work and actually got this done. But this was a bigger kind of societal conversation where we all kind of went in and said, we need to get this done quickly. And I want to give props to the Trump administration. They did have a huge hand in getting these vaccines uh, created and, and through the process in a way that was safe, but also in a way that got to a lot of people. So we're going to give props where, where, where they should be given out. Um, but what do we do about these patents? Right. Do we try to do whatever it takes to get them out to as many to get this vaccine out as to, to me to as many people as possible? Or do we say, hey, we want to make sure that these folks that came up with it get the benefit of their invention? Where do you come down on that debate, Chris? Yeah, I mean, Justin, I come down solidly uh, on on the side of of uh, of re- releasing these patents. Um, I would have been very, very angry uh, if uh, the Biden administration did not choose uh, to uh, to to land where they landed in terms of at least let's have a, a conversation about how we uh, open up these patents. Uh, it's so important. Uh, that we, as the United States, participate as uh, as a good citizen uh, in the world, right? We need to be uh, just as we talk about being good neighbors uh, personally and in our uh, in our civics uh, uh, domestically. United States needs to be a good neighbor uh, and a good citizen of the world. Uh, absolutely, no need for us to be. Um, sitting on uh, this type of innovation and creativity uh, and not uh, share it with the rest of the world, um, period. Not to mention the fact that we're talking about uh, a virus, right, that cannot be contained in one part of the world. Uh, And so if the virus is not uh, contained globally, then it remained a a threat to the United States. Uh, But the biggest thing uh, that drives my thought on this is is what you just talked about, Justin, in terms of the capitalism that is involved in this creation, right? I do believe that capitalism is more innovative, right? But but that innovation, the reason we call it capitalism is because that innovation belongs to those who provide the capital. Um, as a person who has started a business, I understand that when you start a business, I mean, some folks don't do it this way, but if you want to start a business and you want to be able to launch into it at some level of scale and make sure that it can sustain, uh, one of the things that you do is you go around and get a few folks uh, to invest. Uh, what they are doing when they invest is they are putting in capital, uh, giving you the the capital, the resources that you need uh, to start the business. Uh, and so when that business begins to produce uh, profit, that profit does not belong uh it belongs to all the folks who who invested capital. So as a as a strategist starting a consulting firm, you know, I'm providing that human capital, that intellectual capital, but if there are folks who have invested financial capital, operational capital, uh, and other types of things, then that profit actually belongs to them and it would be uh, incorrect. It would be illegal uh, in the in the corporate situation for me then to turn around and say, well, you all are not entitled to any of this profit because I was it was my idea 
uh, and my, uh, you know, day to day work that made the production. So this patent literally, in my view, does not belong solely to these pharmaceutical companies. Uh, long before uh, Operation Warp Speed, which was a critical part of actually bringing these vaccines uh, to market, uh, United States taxpayers were investing in the research, investing in the development. Um, and, and not only to me, should these vaccines uh, be available to the general public, I think that is a great opportunity for us to rethink uh, how we allow pharmaceutical companies uh, to profit so much off of uh, taxpayer investments? And do we see as taxpayers, as, as, as government, do we see enough return uh, on our investment uh, across the board when we're investing uh, in these type of pharmaceuticals? I don't think a lot of people realize uh, how much taxpayers are investing in literally every pharmaceutical innovation uh, that we've seen, you know, over many, many years. Uh, and we've reaped, I don't think enough from this. So I, I, I certainly think that, that there are, you know, a dozen reasons why we need to be uh, making this vaccine as available as possible uh, around the world. But I also see here an opportunity for a, a real needed conversation around how we invest in pharmaceutical research uh, and and if the taxpayers really seeing uh, you know the return on that investment, yeah, and this is a conversation where big pharma was putting a lot of money into lobbying so that this wouldn't happen, right? In the lobby, after you know you get taxpayer money, and thank God you know we were able to come up with the vaccines. Now you're lobbying to say no, let us hold on to these, uh, let us hold on to these patents, and it's just a hard argument to make when you have a pandemic going on. When you have so much uh, public investment in the conversation, yes, the general rule for me is patents are good that, you know, patents allow people to benefit from what they created and it and incentivizes people to create. I think that's something that has made, you know, put America in a place to be a lot more innovative than a lot of other spaces. And you may not like it, but that is just the facts to me. And it allows us to help people. Right. Um but in you, you're talking about a pandemic situation and you're lobbying and we have politicians who are listening to the lobbying to 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 not make sure this gets out to as many people as possible. Like you said, if one of my parents would have passed away because they couldn't get access just because somebody wanted to make sure that they made money in the middle of a pandemic when they already got, you know, a, a lot of help from the public. It's just hard to defend. Um, and so. We'll see how this ends up. But it's something that, you know, we as Christians need to think about these conversations is not to say that someone can never benefit from something that helps people. This, to me, is a very serious exception. And I'm with Chris. We need to review what this looks like when you get public funding and then you create something that the people who paid their hard earned money can't even afford now die because they can't have access to it. A lot of conversations we have to have. But I think one of the main things is to make sure that we have the leadership that's willing to step up and stand for what's right instead of being courted through all these uh, uh, through all these uh, folks coming up to, to D.C. and other places uh, trying to change their mind with money and all this other stuff. The lobbying is cool. But in this situation, man, you got to stand on on what's right, man. So as always, y'all, we appreciate you joining us for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please put a comment in the comment section of. Uh, whatever you listen, whether it's on um, you know iTunes or whether you listen to it on, on Spotify, show us some love, give us a, 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 our five stars, and then consider 
consider being a part of this movement and not just listening to the movement. We have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash church politics. You can also give on the and campaign website. We're trying to grow. We're trying, you know, the demand for what the and campaign does is bigger than the capacity. And so we need your help. If you want to see this grow, we're going to need your help to make it grow. Even if you don't have any money, you know, we understand that. Share this podcast with somebody, share what we're doing with somebody, and, and we'd appreciate it. So as usual, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ, Ann Camp. Until next time, we'll holler at you.